Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. The reason why we're all here, right? Well, today, one-in-one Internet turned off all of my servers. Uh, I was watching them. I, I, I was hoping that they keep their promise just so that they couldn't bill, them for, bill me for them this month, to be honest. That the um, Of course, I don't need them anymore. All the Christogenia sites are moved now. All the Christogenia sites are up and running. All the other websites I host, um, carolynjaeger.net, kinsmanredeemer.org, fgcp.org, and, and, and NS Europa, and Der Fuhrer, and Der Sturmer, and, and a whole bunch of other sites that I host are all up and running. There's a couple of technical glitches. Carolyn's complaining she can't post a program. I'm, I'm going to try to get to that in the morning. Uh, I got problems here and there. That's the way it works. But when you take um, four web servers and three shared hosting spaces and, and move it all in five days, right? You, you're, you're bound to have some glitches. I'm just sorry it always seems to be happening to Carolyn, but you're bound to have some glitches. I have some problems with some of my other sites also. It, it was um, this afternoon when I got the um, – but when I finally was able to um, – I'm sorry, early this morning I was finally able to pu- to publish last night's program on Krista Genninger and, and, and um, get this chat server, the, the chat page on Krista Genninger up and running. So so that there's going to be glitches even with my own site, and, and as we proceed through the coming weeks – I'm sure they'll all be ironed out. I just can't manage um, so, so much and do everything in a brief period of time. It's not possible, right? So one and one kept their promise, and, and, and I don't know if I'm going to have any. Um, I, I'm going to write about this in, in, an, in an upcoming Saxon Messenger. There will be a July Saxon Messenger, and there will be an August Saxon Messenger. They may not be here until September, but they will definitely be here. I, I spoke to um, the wonderful woman that helps me put that publication together today, and, and we're both committed to keeping it a monthly and not to skip, not, not to skip any month due to these circumstances, right? Tonight I'm going to talk about something that I wrote several years ago for, for Clifton, Little things that we look at in Scripture and how we interpret them, those little things, they add up and they go a long way to help us develop a Weltanschauung, a a worldview that is firmly grounded in the Word of God. All the little things, the way we make interpretations of certain Greek words, they add up to a whole totally different wealth in Shang than, than the Judeo-Christians have. But it goes a lot deeper than just the word Gentile or the word Jew and, and understanding those in their historical context. They're important, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And this paper, I don't really remember why I wrote it, but I think I wrote it right after I translated, finished my Paul translations, to be honest not long after I myself made the realization of how Paul is using this word, this paper presents one of those little things, right? This is Yahweh's anointed, the children of Israel. 
And we're going to talk about the word Christos and how it's used in the New Testament and, and how the, the, the Hebrew equivalent, Meshiach or Messiah, is used in the Old. The word Christos is defined by Liddell and Scott as a verbal adjective of the verb of the verb creo, which means to be rubbed on. Of persons, Christos means anointed, with the article as a substantive, ho Christos in Greek. We have the anointed one, a reference to Christ throughout the New Testament, as a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah if I have to pr- try to pronounce the Yiddish. The root verb, creo, Strong's number 5548, means to rub or anoint with scented unguents, to anoint. So we see that when used of persons, the adjective Christos simply means anointed. Let me say that this word comes from the, the ancient tradition which we read in the books of Kings and Chronicles and, and, and 1 and 2 Samuel, and it's probably an older custom than that, but I can't think of a citation right offhand. The, old, the ancient custom of rubbing somebody anointed to a particular position, of pouring oil on their heads and rubbing it in to anoint them as a symbolic gesture that they have been placed into a particular position, whether by God or by their community. Wherever the King James translators found the word Christos, whether it was used as an adjective or used as a substantive, in other words, the adjective accompanied with the article becomes a substantive, together the article and the adjective become a noun. That's what a substantive is. Whether the King James translators found the word Christos as an adjective or a substantive, either by habitual repetition or through plain ignorance, they translated the word as Christ with the capital C, meaning to refer to Jesus or Yahshua Christ. Therefore, Christians reading the King James Version and other versions of the Bible have been led to believe that the word Christos always refers to Christ himself. Most translations, which have been done since the King James Version of the Bible, have simply followed it in this respect and have not sought to correct it. The lexicographers, even including Liddell and Scott, have done the same thing. They've, they, they've simply accepted the way the King James translated the word in, throughout the New Testament as being a legitimate practice. Because of this situation, all of the translations which I give here in this essay shall be my own unless I otherwise note them. Comparing the passages which I'm going to supply here with those found in the King James Version and using a Strong's Concordance, 
the listener should be able to assess the validity of the assertions which I make throughout this presentation. The verb creo means to anoint. It's found in Luke chapter 4. It's found in, well, where it, Yahshua himself claims it, or, or states that Yahweh had anointed him, right? It's found in Acts chapter 4. It's found in Acts chapter 10. It's found in Hebrews 1.9. The verb creo very often pertains to Christ. And all those passages refer to him as the anointed or as being anointed by God for the purpose for which he came. However, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see this same verb used in the same manner of the children of Israel. I'm going to read um, 2 Corinthians 1.21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. So we see that Paul is telling the Christians of Corinth that they are anointed. Indeed, the Corinthians were descendants of Israelite tribes. The Corinthians are Dorian Greeks. That's readily evident throughout Greek and later Roman history. The Corinthians are Dorian Greeks who settled in Greece over a thousand years before the birth of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 11, Paul explains this. Paul tells the Corinthians that all their fathers were under the cloud, that all their fathers had been baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Paul's talking about his fathers and the fathers of the Corinthians. Otherwise, it would be absolutely useless making such statements to them. Which is proof of what I'm about to say here. There's a, likewise a related noun, charisma. The related noun is used by John, where John is speaking of Israelite Christians. The King James Version of the Bible translates that word charisma as unction in 1 John 2.20. And it translates that same verb as anointing twice in 1 John 2.27. That, that noun, charisma, it, it's actually where we get the English word charisma, right? But, but the English word is... It is probably coined in vaudeville and uses it, it. It's for a totally different purpose, right? John uses charisma in 1 John 2.27 where he says, but the anointing, that's charisma, which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teaches you. But as the same anointing, that's charisma, teaches you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as it taught you, you shall abide in him. John's talking about the anointing which Christians have, which Christian Israelites have, just as Paul was talking about the anointing which these Christian Dorian Greeks had.
uses of these same words in the same manner pertaining to the children of Israel are found throughout the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, as their Hebrew counterparts are in the Masoretic text. And we find these uses in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Chronicles 16. We find it very often in the Psalms that these words, meaning anointed, are used of the children of Israel. In the second Psalm, in the sixth, uh, I'm sorry, in the 19th Psalm, the 27th Psalm, the 83rd Psalm, the 88th, the 104th, the 131st Psalms, and in Habakkuk. 313, and also in Lamentations 420. I'm going to cite some of those. I'm going to cite 1 Samuel 2, verse 10 from the King James. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken in pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, talking about the children of Israel in the context in which the statement lies. Psalm 105 from verse 10, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. When they were but few men in number, they, that is the context of the passage, right? When they, meaning the children of Israel, were but few men in number, yeah, very few, and strangers in it, strangers in the land of Canaan. When they went from one nation to another, from Canaan to Egypt, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yeah, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, referring to the subject hasn't changed, the same children of Israel. Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. And we'll see that same account given in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 with the same language. From the second psalm, speaking about the children of Israel in the time of David. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder. Yahweh and Yahshua Christ are one. This isn't referring to Christ. It is used allegorically to refer to Christ in the New Testament as it was that he also fulfilled that prophecy. But Christ fulfilled many of the prophecies concerning the children of Egypt. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Yes, it refers to Christ, but yes, it refers to Jacob and the children of Israel. Likewise here, it referred to it was used as a messianic prophecy to refer to Christ, but that does not spoil the context in which it lies in the second Psalm where it talks about the children of Israel. We see the plural. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's the, the hegemony, 
That's the rule that the children of Israel had over the Oikumene, the Adamic world, in the kingdom period that's being referred to. He that sits in the heaven shall laugh, Yahweh shall have them in derision. Abraham's seed was promised that they would inherit the earth. That's what that's referring to. So we see that the anointed in the Old Testament often refers to the collective children of Israel as a group. 1 Samuel 2.10, Psalm 105, and the second Psalm, Psalm 2. And there are many other instances of that same phenomenon. While the term Jesus Christos in Greek is literally Yahshua anointed or anointed Yahshua, usually written Yahshua Christ, right, or Jesus Christ, and while ho Christos, that's the word Christos, would be the definite article which be, in which it becomes a substantive or a noun, where ho Christos is always the Christ in the King James Version of the Bible, And it does very often refer to the Christ, of course, in the New Testament. The primary assertion here is that the phrase ho Christos also often refers to the children of Israel as a group, the collective body of Christ. And this is especially apparent in the letters of Paul, that the children of Israel with Yahshua Christ as their head, are the anointed as a group, is explained by Paul, and we'll discuss these passages, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 6, uh, I'm sorry, 11 through 16. And Paul makes this allusion very often elsewhere. Now, although Ho Christos is singular, and, and all of the sophomoric, and I call them sophomoric, right? Sophomoric, somebody who's being sophomoric is basically somebody who knows enough to be a smartass, right? That's, that, that's a sophomore. That, that's the way the, the word sophomore is used at, as a um, pejorative. Somebody who's sophomoric knows a little bit, and, and they, that they want to take it and be a smartass, right? Well, some of the sophomoric commentators would insist that Ho Christos is singular, that it can only refer to one individual because it's singular. Such singular nouns are often used to describe such a collection of individuals in Greek. For instance, we have the noun sperma. It's singular in many places where it's talking about seed or offspring. It's talking about all of one's children as a group. There are instances of that, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, Romans chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. We see the word ethnos. Ethnos is a nation, yes, but it's also used collectively of people. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 19, and very often in context, that's the way we have to translate it and understand it in English. And I'm going to read Romans chapter 10, where the King James says, In verse 19, but I say, this is Paul talking rhetorically, right? 
Did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. Well, that word people is ethnos, and it's singular, right? And yes, it could be translated nation, but there are many places in Scripture, in the Septuagint, and a couple of places in the New Testament where ethnos is best translated people. And it's plural, but it's singular in its grammatical construction because it's a collective noun. We see in Hebrews 11.18, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And seed is singular, but it's talking about all of Isaac's offspring. Because Christ was never called Isaac. That wasn't his name anywhere. It would be silly to insist that that has to refer to Jesus Christ. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Talking about the collective offspring through Jacob in this case, because Esau lost his birthright. One Corinthians eleven three, Paul says in the Christogenian New Testament, but I wish for you to acknowledge that of every man the head is the anointed. That's the way I translate it. But the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the anointed, Yahweh. Why do I translate that like that? Yahshua Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh. I and my Father are one. Paul says that Christ is the fullness of the divinity bodily. He is God come in the flesh. It's silly to think that Paul is saying that of every man the head is Jesus Christ, but the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Jesus Christ is, is Yahweh. Yeah, you could make an argument for that. But if Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh, he is Yahweh. He is God. He doesn't need a head. He is the head. The Father has delivered all things to him, allegorically speaking. Every man should put his racial kindred first. Of every man, the head is the anointed. Love thy brother. If you love me, take up your cross and follow me. He gave his life for his kinsmen, being the kinsman redeemer, right? We should give our lives. We don't have to die for our brother if, if it's not necessary. We should devote our lives to our kinsmen as he did his. So of every man, the head is the anointed. The children of Israel is a group. We should strive to please our brother. But the head of the woman, the head of our wife, is the man. And the head of the anointed as a group is God. That's 1 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Corinthians 12.12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also the anointed, not the Christ. Of course, we're all the body of Christ because we, if we are children of Israel and we accept our redemption, we are the anointed. 
as a group, the children of Israel who believe in their Redeemer, who accept their, their Redeemer and his sacrifice on our behalf, who understand what Yahweh has done for us, for the sake of our fathers, we are the anointed. That is why Paul tells the Christians, and, and the Apostle John tells Christians, that they received an anointing. When somebody who is of the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel accepts their redemption, they take, they accept that anointing from God. They accept that anointing and take a part in the body of the anointed and work for the body, being one member. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he has given the ambassadors and the interpreters of prophecy and those who delivered a good message, many members and many gifts, right? And the shepherds, teachers, all of these are, towards the restoration of the saints, the restoration, Paul in Ephesians, he's talking to Israelites. He's talking about restoration. He's not talking to Gentiles, right? He's not talking to people who never knew God. He's talking to those Amos 3, 2 people. For you are the only family I have known in all the earth. We'll see that here too. Towards the restoration of the saints for the work of ministering the building of the body, not the body of Christ. His body's resurrected and, and ascended, right? The body of the anointed, the group as a whole. Until we all would attain to the unity of the faith and of the acknowledgement of the Son of Yahweh. At man perfected, at the measure of the stature of the fullness of the anointed. We can't achieve the perfection of Christ. We can achieve the perfection. Christ can achieve his own perfection, right? We can achieve the perfection, the stature of the fullness of the anointed, of the body of Christ as a group, who are the anointed. In order that we would be infants no longer being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of, trick of teaching by the trickery of men and villainy for the sake of the systemizing of deception. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase for all things. We may increase all things for he who is the head, the Christ, from whom all the body is being joined together and is being reconciled, reconciled, through every stroke of assistance according to the operation of each single part in proportion, the growth of the body creates itself into a building in love when you devote your life to your kin. Examining these passages where Paul uses that word Christos, that word to refer to the entire body of the children of Israel, Examining 1 Corinthians 11.3 in light of 1 Corinthians 12.12 12 and Ephesians 4.11-16, we see 
that the phrase Ho Christos at 1 Corinthians 11.3 should indeed be the anointed, the children of Israel as a group. But I wish for you to acknowledge that of every man the head is the anointed, but the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the anointed, the head of the group, is Yahweh, and we're all brethren, if indeed you're a child of Israel. Once we realize that, once we see that hope Christos should be the anointed, the children of Israel as a group, we understand what the bottom body of Christ is and how it relates to the Old Testament. And we also see many other passages in Scripture that can be interpreted a lot more clearly once we have this understanding, and we're going to get to them next. Yahshua Christ, being Yahweh come in the flesh, Yahshua Christ being the same as Yahweh, as Paul explains in Colossians 2.8, where he says that he is the fullness of the divinity bodily, where Christ himself says at John 10.30 that he is God, he who has seen me has seen the Father, I and my Father are one, we realize that the anointed in many of these passages, including 1 Corinthians 11.3, refers not to Christ, but to the entire body of, people, of the people of Israel who are the anointing. They are the anointed. They've received the anointing. They received that anointing not at the cross. At the cross, they received the redemption. The anointing they received was back there in, in, in 1 Samuel. It was back there in, in, in Psalm 105. It was back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Psalm 105:15. Yahweh says, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. The people of the New Testament who received that anointing they didn't receive that anointing in the New Testament. Christ didn't anoint anybody on the cross. He redeemed them. They had that anointing all along. Once they were restored, once we're restored, once we're reconciled to our Father in Christ, to whom we have that reconciliation, then we can once again wear that anointing. That anointing that our fathers received in the Old Testament. If our father, nobody else has ever received that anointing, that anointing goes all the way back to those passages in the Old Testament. And nobody else has ever received it. Israel is the chosen of God. None of them are Jews. A walk through Paul's epistles. Examining certain places where the phrase, Ho Christos appears, shall certainly make manifest the veracity of the assertion made, made here. Here we shall examine some places where it is more readily evident that the phrase, the anointed, refers to the children of Israel as a group. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, becoming full-grown, 
refused to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of God than to have the temporary rewards of error if he'd have stayed in the household of Pharaoh where he could well have stayed. Having esteemed the reproach of the anointed, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for the reward. Surely it was not Jesus Christ suffering reproach as a slave in Egypt, but rather it was the anointed people, the children of Israel. Paul is telling us in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, that the children of Israel are the anointed. They were in the Old Testament. They are in the New Testament. They are today. We have an anointing from God, 1 John 2, 27. Moses chose to share in the reproach of the anointed, the reproach of the children of Israel in this bondage of Egypt. 1 Timothy 5.11. Discussing the support of widows by the assembly, and this is really obvious, and, 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 and people that read this and think Christ should be embarrassed, right? Discussing the support of widows by the assembly, Paul makes this statement. And he's talking about younger women who don't have husbands, right? But younger widows, you must excuse. Once a woman is a widow or, or doesn't have a husband and she commits herself to the support of the church, she should stay in that once she's committed to it. And that's what Paul's referring to here, right? But younger widows, you must excuse. For when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, they desire to marry with judgment because they have set aside that former assurance. If a woman doesn't have a husband, and Paul distinguishes in his letters elsewhere between those who are widows and those who are really widows, right? You don't see that in the King James, but you will see it in the Christogenian New Testament because it is in the Greek. When a, when a young woman is without a husband and she commits herself to the care of the assembly, she chooses to work for the assembly in, in exchange for her support. Then if she behaves wantonly towards the anointed, Christ himself isn't there for a woman to behave wantonly towards Christ. That's a ridiculous translation of the King James, but every time they saw that word Christos, they insisted on translating it as Christ. But younger widows, you must excuse for when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, towards the men of the assembly. That's what he's talking about. When they behave, when young women are tempted, they're too young to de dedicate themselves to the church because they're still, they still have hormones, they're still sexually active. Paul's telling Timothy to have these young widows go get married. That's what he's telling them because they will endanger the health of the assembly if they dedicate themselves to that prematurely. So when they do desire to marry, when they fall in love with a man and seduce him and have sex with him, because they have 
committed themselves to the assembly, they're, they're, they're sort of going back on that commitment. So they marry with judgment because they've set aside that assurance. That's what Paul's talking about there. And, and the anointed is not the Christ. The anointed are the men of the assembly. Christ is not there in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 for the, for the young widows to seduce, right? That's a ridiculous translation by the King James. It's referring to the men of the assembly. Who are the anointed? Because we, the children of Israel, received an anointing from God. It's that simple. That proves how Paul is using the term. To me, beyond all doubt, along with what we just read in Hebrews. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Now I encourage you, brethren, by the name of our Prince Joshua Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there may not be divisions among you, but that you are disciplined in the same mind and in the same purpose. It has been disclosed to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe, that there is contention among you. Now I say this, that each of you say, so I am of Paul, but I am of Apollos, but I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now the next line the King James says, has the Christ been divided? And, and that's also a ridiculous statement, right? It should say, have the anointed been divided? The group, has the group been divided? Because they, the, the, the people of Corinth were obviously choosing favorites. Today people choose favorites. Oh, I listen to this guy, or I listen to that guy, and they don't listen to the other guy, and, and the anointed become divided because we're no longer of one mind and one purpose with Christ. It's that simple. Paul's, Paul is scolding the Corinthians for that behavior. That's the way it is. The anointed are not divided. Have the anointed been divided? Has Paul been crucified on your behalf? Or have you been immersed in the name of Paul? Rhetorical questions. Of course the anointed haven't been divided. And the, that should be the way that phrase is translated, because it's the group that should be one. Paul is not asking whether Joshua Christ himself had somehow been divided. In verse 10, he's telling the assembly that there should not be divisions among them. They are the anointed. The people of Christ are the anointed. Warning against such disunity is subsequently a major theme in 1 Corinthians. And it's clear in chapters 3, 4, and 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Although you may have a myriad of tutors among the anointed, not in Christ, a myriad of tutors among the anointed. If we say um, you may have a myriad of tutors in Christ, well, well, anybody could claim to be in Christ, right? And any squat monster can claim to be in Christ, right? But the anointed, once we translate that word correctly throughout the Bible, and we start reading from Genesis, we understand that the anointed are the children of Israel and nobody else. Although you may have a myriad of tutors among the anointed, certainly not many fathers. And Paul claims, indeed in Christ Joshua, through the good message, I have begotten you. That, 
that that concept is a concept of respect for one's teachers, which was um, pretty common in the first century. Well, which is um, the origin of the misused word Papa, which we find in, in the 4th and 5th centuries. In early Christianity, Papa was a term of respect, which was used of many men who were teachers and elders, not of a supreme pope, right? The phrase en Christo, it's the dative case with the preposition in, is among the anointed. And it often appears in the Christogonian New Testament very often. En Christo, among the anointed. That word en, even though it's simply in, can also mean upon, in the number of, or amongst, even according to Liddell and Scott. Many people think wrongly of Paul's statement here concerning his attitude towards those to whom he brought the gospel, considering himself to be their father. Those who scoff should consult Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. <laughs> and Yahshua answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house of brethren or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or lands for my sake and the sake of the gospel. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the world to come, eternal life. We here in this chat room, I'm sure, have all experienced that. We've all disagreed with our families over Christian doctrine. We've all basically forsaken our families over Christian doctrine. And... Looking around the chat room, we find that we have many brethren and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And that's what Paul's referring to. Once it is recognized that Paul uses the phrase, Ho Christos, the anointed, to refer not only to Yahshua Christ, but to the children of Israel as a whole, Many difficult and little understood passages may be looked at in an entirely new light. From a Kingdom Israel identity viewpoint, this recognition is of great benefit to our understanding of Paul and to our beliefs in general. Because Paul was the first teacher of Christian identity. He was the first teacher of Israel identity, which may become apparent as we examine the following passages. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I speak the truth among the anointed. Not, I speak the truth in Christ. I speak the truth among the anointed. I lie not. My conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit the grief for me is great and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed 
that I myself would become accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh. Paul's referring to the real Israelites in Judea, right? Those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons? All Israel shares it, whether they're in Judea or in Europe. And the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises, those who are the fathers and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, Paul's telling us that the new covenant is for the anointed in regards to the flesh. That anointing is back there in the 105th Psalm. That anointing is back there in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It refers to the children of Israel. Nobody else can ever claim to have that anointing because there's nowhere in the scripture that ever says that that anointing is for anybody in addition to the children of Israel, period. Once we understand Paul's use of the word, we can build our house on the bedrock and have a much firmer understanding of Scripture. Whose are the fathers and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages truly. At verse 1 here in, in Romans chapter 9, Paul explains that he speaks the truth among the anointed, for his mission is to the nations of Israel. Those nations actually descended from the ancient Israelites, as he explains in various places throughout his letters, as we've seen allusions and, and references to restoration and reconciliation in the passages cited here tonight. At Romans chapter 8, verse 39... <coughs> Excuse me. A couple of lines prior to this very passage, Paul explains that nothing could separate us from the love of Yahweh, which is in Christ Yahshua, our Prince. So here, Paul can't talk, be talking about being accursed from Christ. He's talking about being accursed from the anointed. He's referring to the group of the people of Israel, not to Christ himself. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Let's read Paul's letters in context. Paul is offering himself in place of his brethren. That's what he's doing here. If he could do such a thing, that's what he's stating here. He's willing to sacrifice himself in place of his brethren because he's afraid that his brethren would be destroyed. His real Israelite brethren in Judea would be destroyed because they did not accept the gospel. The proof of that's in Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul told the Romans that Satan was about to be trampled under their feet. Paul knew the judgment which was about to come on Jerusalem. How did Paul know that? He knew it from Daniel chapter 9. It's written right in Daniel chapter 9 that the people of God would destroy the city of Jerusalem because of how they treated the Messiah. Paul explains, in here in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, that the anointed are Israelites and are of the fathers. If you're not Israelites of the fathers, you're not one of the anointed. Once we translate this word correctly in, in this context, 
the identity message materializes throughout the scripture in many places. Ted Pike can't see the identity message in scripture because he's looking at the trees. If you look at the entire story in context, if you look at the forest, we don't see the identity message in scripture because scripture is the identity message. The entire scripture. Here in Romans 9, Paul is distinguishing between the true Israelites of Judea, who he cares about, who he's expressing a care for here, and the Edomite Jew usurpers of Judea. And for that reason, Paul continues in verses 9, in Romans 9, verses 6 through 12, and verses 12 through 23, I'm sorry, 20 through 23, contrasting the fates of Jacob and Esau. Paul makes that contrast because the Edomites are vessels of destruction and the Israelites are vessels of mercy, because the Edomites are cursed because they're race mixed and the Israelites are blessed by the will and the grace of God. Mainstream churches fail to distinguish between these two groups and they fail to distinguish these, to translate these first five verses of Romans chapter 9 properly. Once we understand Paul's use of the term anointed, it all comes to light. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak as befits a man, even a validated covenant of man no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. A verb of the medium voice. In a verb of the medium voice, the doer of the action is also the recipient. The King James missed that in the translation, right? Now to Abraham, the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed. Now I say this, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, talking about the covenant between him and Abraham and him and Isaac and him and Jacob. The law which arrived 430 years after does not invalidate by which the promise is left idle. For if from law, the Edomites were claiming to practice the law, for if from law the inheritance is no longer from promise, but to Abraham through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. Christ may be the heir of all things, but the very purpose of Christ is for the children of Israel, his elect, explicitly stated in many places in Isaiah, chapter 43, chapter 44, chapter 53, which is a messianic prophecy. Yahshua Christ is not the only legitimate heir of the promises to the fathers, as the mainstream churches would wish. Rather, as we see in Genesis chapter 35, verses 10 through 15, for instance, the promise was handed down from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob and all his descendants. That these are the heirs of the promise, plural, not singular. The heirs of the promise is made clear by Paul in many places. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, where he says, by, 
by which Yahweh is more abundantly desiring to display to the heirs of the promise, plural, the immutability of his will mediated by an oath. We see that Christ isn't the heir of the promise, as the mainstream churches try to assert in Galatians chapter 3. That's ridiculous. For which reason Paul tells us that the promise has heirs, plural, Hebrews 6.17. Hebrews 9.15, and I quote, And for this reason he is a mediator, Christ is a mediator of the new covenant, so that from death resulting in redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, those having been invited, or those having been called, which can only refer to Israel, the new covenant was made only with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, those having been invited would receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Again, we see those, plural, the inheritance, the covenant as heirs, plural, not singular. At Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Paul states that from faith, the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring in reference to the nation sprung from Abraham's loins. So we see three witnesses in Paul that the inheritors of the promise, the heirs of the promise, are all of the children of Israel. All Israel will be saved, Isaiah 45, 20. Or maybe it's Isaiah 45, 25. It's in there somewhere. I'm sorry. So we can't point to one verse in Galatians and negate three verses in Paul's writings with our bad idea, which is what Ted Pike tried to do in his letter, trying to condemn Christian identity. I would rather condemn Ted Pike. His own words condemn him for us. At Galatians three, fifteen through 18, Paul explains that the heirs of the promise are the anointed seed, the children of Israel, and not the children of Abraham's other offspring, Ishmael, the sons of Keturah, the children of Esau. This is a recurring theme in Paul's letters. We've seen that in Romans 9. We see it again in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul makes an allegory which recalls the exclusion of Ishmael. And not only does he recall it, but he sustains it. The children of Ishmael are still excluded from the covenants with Jacob. Ultimately, Esau and Ishmael were treated in this manner because they both took wives of the Canaanites. They both race mixed, having children of mixed race who were void of that spirit, which the children of Adam alone are endowed with ye who bear the vessels of Yahweh. Only the children of Adam and the children of Israel could hold that spirit and be anointed. There's a lot of contention from sophomores that the phrase host estin Christos may be, what which may be rendered which are anointed has to be rendered in a singular, which is Christ, because the verb is singular. So because the verb is singular with a singular noun, or, or actually a singular adjective, they want to insist that it has to refer to only one person. That's ridiculous. 
The pronoun hosts, the verb estin, and the adjective are all in the masculine gender and all in the singular because it's a collective noun, just like sperma or seed is often used as a collective noun, just like fish is often a collective noun used in the singular of many fish. Such collective nouns are commonly treated in the singular in the Greek. There are many instances, right in the King James Version of the Bible, in Galatians 4.24, in Galatians 5.19, in this same epistle, where that verb, that singular verb, refers to a collective, it's translated by the King James in the plural. So all of those arguments of grammar by the sophomores by the sophists, by the sophomoric interpreters, none of them hold up. That the phrase post estin Christos may be rendered which are anointed in English is even clearer once we understand that if Paul had meant it to refer only to Christ himself, it would have perfectly it would have been perfectly clear that it referred only to Christ himself, if Paul used the article, the singular article, host estin ho Christos, to refer to Christ, using it as a singular substantive, which is the Christ. Paul didn't do that. So we see that term, that use of that term of the collective group of the children of Israel again in Galatians chapter 3, just like we've seen it in Romans chapter 9, and several other places, in Hebrews chapter 11, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And I quote, For this cause I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ, on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family, that word is oikonomia, it means management of a family, right? If indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading you were able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed. It's not the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery of the anointed. Christ spelled out exactly what was going to happen to him and exactly why. So where does the, where's the mystery there? It's the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit. Those nations which are joint heirs, joint heirs, plural, and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ, Yahshua, through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of his power. To me, the least of all saints has been given this favor. To announce the good message to the nations, this thread does not change, the subject does not change. The mystery is the mystery of the anointed. It's the mystery of the identity of the people of God because he put them away. He hid his people like he said he was going to hide his people right in the Old Testament. 
my hidden ones. Hidden in history because we don't keep our history. Which in other generations, I'm sorry, I'm getting way behind myself. To announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, and to lighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, the household of the mystery, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, his people were concealed, as he states in the Old Testament, by whom all things are being established. A few verses later, Ephesians three fourteen through 17 Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom the whole family in the heavens and upon the earth is named. What did he say in Isaiah chapter 43? To Jacob, I have named thee. Paul's only talking to the children of Israel. Nobody else can properly take the name Christian. Nobody else. In order that he would give to you, in accordance with the riches of his honor, the ability to be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man, to administer the anointed, Paul's not trying to administer Christ. Christ doesn't need Paul to administer to him. To administer the anointed through the faith in your hearts, being planted and founded in love. It is clear in Paul's letters, in the verses supplied above and elsewhere, that Paul knew that all of the promises of the Old Testament, which include the New Covenant, were for Israel alone. The family of the faith. Amos 3.2 You only have I known of all the families of the earth. The mystery discussed here is clearly, once that word anointed is translated correctly, is understood in context, the mystery discussed here by Paul is clearly not the mystery of Christ, meaning Yahshua. Rather, the mystery is this. If Abraham had descendants as the sand of the sea, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. And in that manner, Abraham became the father of many nations, Genesis 17, 4, which Paul explains in depth in Romans chapter 4, that the, those nations of the promise came from Abraham's seed, and that that was the faith of Abraham, and that we should follow the faith of Abraham. We follow the faith of Abraham because we believe that Abraham's seed did become many nations, and we in Christian identity understand who those nations are. There were no Germans when Abraham was made that promise. Where did they come from? Ted Pike notwithstanding, there were no Englishmen, there were no Frenchmen, there were no Goths, there were no Vandals. There were no Alemanni. There were no Angles. If Abraham's descendants became as the sand of the sea, and in that manner he became the father of many nations, as Sarah would be a mother of nations, Genesis seventeen sixteen, and this promise was passed down specifically through Jacob, Genesis thirty five eleven. then where were all of these nations? That's the mystery Paul's talking about, the mystery of the anointed. 
clearly, as he, ex- as, as he is explaining here in Ephesians, it was indeed revealed to Paul where these people were. It's evident throughout his letters. He tells the Romans in chapter 1 that they had the truth of God and turned it into a lie. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Behold, the nations according to the flesh. The nations according to the flesh. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The nations according to the flesh. In other words, those nations descended from the loins of Abraham. The nations according to the flesh. The things the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to idols and not to God. They sacrifice to devils and not to God. He's not talking about Jews. Jews weren't going around sacrificing pig to devils in the first century. Jews weren't doing that. The nations according to the flesh. The Dorian Greeks, the Trojan Illyrians, the Germanic Galatians, the people the, the Dorian, well, well, the Danning Greeks, there were others, descended from the children of Israel. Paul knew who they were. And his message shows it to them He brought the gospel. It's quite clear once you translate those words correctly. It's perfectly clear. There's no doubt. And Ted Pike and all the scoffers can go to hell. While in this day, through a thorough study of ancient history, archaeology, and language, The Israelite origins of the people of Europe can be established with certainty. This was not manifest to the scholars of Paul's time, and it hasn't been manifest to many scholars since. From the dawn of Christianity, Paul's work was the glue by which the new covenant faith in Christ adhered to the true children of Israel the Aryan nations of Europe, even if those people are still blind to it. It's incredible, isn't it? It's the mystery, it's the majesty of the word of our God. Paul strove to reveal to them their identity 2,000 years ago. They're still blind. In their blindness, most of Israel still can't see it. Of course, that blindness is also a matter of prophecy. Deuteronomy 28, verses 28 and 29. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 9 through 16. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43. Paul's message to the Colossians was very much like that to the Ephesians. Colossians 1, chapter chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. Paul says, Now I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf. Now, the King James really drops the ball on this one. And I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed. Paul's referring to the people as a group. 
with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly, of which I have become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh, the mystery which has been concealed from the ages and from the races, or the generations, if you will, but it has to be the generations of the same race, but now has been made visible to the, his saints, to whom Yahweh did wish it to make known what the riches of the honor of this mystery are among the nations, the mystery being that those nations are the people who came from Abraham's loins through Jacob. And Paul proves that in his conclusion where he says, which is the expectation of honor anointed in you, the expectation. They would, have not, they would not have had that expectation if they weren't Israelites. Here Paul certainly was not suggesting that Yahshua Christ hadn't suffered enough. So Paul had to suffer more on behalf of Yahshua. That's not what he's saying. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Rather, Paul tells the assembly that he suffers on behalf of the anointed. He suffers on behalf of the children of Israel that they be brought his message. Further on, in Colossians 2.11, Paul mentions the circumcision of the anointed, which is that circumcision of the hearts of the children of Israel. It's forecast in the prophets. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 10, chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 4, and Paul mentions it in Romans 2.29 and elsewhere. At Colossians 4.3, Paul says, At the same time, praying also for us, in order that Yahweh would create an opportunity for the word, for us to speak of the mystery of the anointed, for which I also have been bound. Paul says he was bound in these chains for the hope of Israel in the book of Acts. He was bound in those chains for the hope of Israel that the gospel would be spoken to the children of Israel. And to understand how he spoke the gospel to the children of Israel, you have to understand what the mystery of the anointed is. Puts it all together, don't it? Elsewhere, Paul states that his mission was to deliver a message for compliance of faith by all of the nations, Romans 1.5, and that his message was the proclamation of Yahshua Christ in accordance with the a revelation of mystery, having been kept secret in times eternal. The Christian identity message was not supposed to be manifest to our fathers, but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all the nations. What nations? Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. The faith is defined by Paul as being the belief of Abraham that his seed would become many nations. They did indeed. So it should be fully evident that the anointed is a collective group. 
are the children of Israel of those very nations descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom Paul brought the gospel. Paul consistently spoke to those same nations about redemption. Romans chapter 3, chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 9. He spoke to them about reconciliation. Ephesians 2.16, Colossians chapter 1. Those things are matters of prophecy foretold only for the children of Israel. Redemption and reconciliation were mentioned to all the nations Paul preached his gospel to. He gave his gospel to the anointed, the children of Israel, as a group. Once we understand... Those passages, we have an even better wealth in Sean. We have an even better worldview and a firmer view of the gospel and a firmer foundation to stand on. That'll be all for tonight. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will see you next Friday, finally with, I pray, Luke chapter 10. Good night.